Hello, Docolo. Welcome to the Documenteers podcast, where each week we discuss a different documentary. My name is Bob Sham, and we have a lot to get through here because this episode kicks off Listener Requests Month, and we start with a much-requested docuseries. And it's directed by one of the heads on Mount Documore. Angela and I are finally getting to Errol Morris' Netflix series, Wormwood, because you demanded it. Next week, Listener Requests Month trucks on for another documentary that is often mentioned and this marks the first time I've ever seen it. Also, a special friend who is a chef steps in to help me out in this episode about a sushi chef in Roppongi. That's in Japan, like a district in Tokyo. Who is, by many accounts, the best in the world? The guy has been doing it for 85 years by the filming of this documentary. And what exactly does it mean to reach perfection? My good friend William joins me next week as we get hungry, discussing... Jiro Dreams of Sushi by David Gelb. All that sashimi and more next week right here on The Documenteers. Lots of brief clips to credit on today's show as docuseries chapters are transitioned with music. Dates are very important in Wormwood, and all the music selected were hits during various years mentioned throughout this series. The bands and musicians we hear in this episode are Berlin, Yes, Dear Nora, Till Tuesday, David Bowie, Webb Pierce, and Perry Como. And those last two are actually featured in this docuseries we are about to discuss. Co-host Johnny, who appears on this show often, has released a new album under his band Village Geniuses, and it was produced by the guy from the Danielson family. Purchase links are not available as I record this, and I will probably push more of the album when that is available, but at the end of this episode, we play the song Hardest Part by the Village Geniuses, and we hope you enjoy it. Johnny is very influenced by classic folk and western styles and power pop and shit like that. He's very much a guitar singer type guy. Documenterspodcast.com for more on us. Five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts is how you spread word about the show. It's the absolute best way to support the show. Please do so if you haven't done so already. Also, you can hear us on the iHeartRadio app now. Hooray! We got a long one here, folks, so let's get into this. Wormwood. By Errol Morris. Keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. What were you told at the time of your father's death? I was told that your father has had an accident. He fell or jumped out the window and he Died. Oh my God. You know, it randomly just hit my head. Huh. Remember when we did the Billy Bob Thornton freak out shorty Ugh. episode? Yeah, I'd like to not remember it. And we made fun of Billy Bob Thornton a lot. Yeah. In that, uh, we kind of love, hate him in that episode. Oh, no. Is he going to be in this? Oh, no. Okay, okay. Keep far, going. Keep going. I don't I know. know. Okay, I don't know anything really about this. Go. But I had heard recently, someone had told me that that Q guy on that show got me too. He's apparently like a sexual harasser creep. Who's Q? The interviewer? Yeah, the interviewer <gasps> guy. Fuck that guy. So it's just like dick on dick. The only the only pure hearts in that room are the box masters. 
mm-hmm. sitting there awkwardly. And whoever was typing on that computer, I can get you a way out if this goes south. Like that was probably <laughs> the best person in the room. He probably or outside meant, of the room. He probably meant that legally on cues <laughs> oh, we no. have as well. I can get you out of these oh. allegations. Just don't hit on Billy Bob. So yeah, the the box master's sitting there looking awkward because not only is there celebrity frontman being a douchebag. Uh, I grew up as pretty much a music historian, so. But they're sitting across from a fucking creepazoid. What if Billy Bob got the creepazoid vibe from him and was acting that way because he was a creepazoid? I'm I'm sure. Do we love Billy Bob Thornton again? I'm, I'm, look, we all put on our big time hats sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're all like, do you know who I am? I, I don't do that. Yeah, you're not the type. <laughs> you've been at, you know, at jobs you've worked at for a long time. People have tried to explain something to you and you haven't been like, excuse me? No. Not to their face. Maybe later when I'm talking to you. <laughs> See, I'm a to your face kind of guy. And then I feel bad about it later, kind of. Mm. I don't know. Look, there's just the... It's the uh, it's the way we're opposites that also attract. Absolutely. You're a good cop. I'm bad cop. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm relaxed cop. I tell you, I got a lot of work at my unnamed day job right now. <laughs> Your unnamed day job, yeah. And I got a lot of work to set up to prepare mm-hmm. for listener request month. Oh, yeah, you do. I got a full plate. And this is a leap year. Mm-hmm. I got to set this up throughout February, which is when we're recording this, full disclosure. Oh, you have an extra Friday, don't you? I thought I have one less. No. Yes, I do. It's a leap year. No, so it's good. I need that. I probably need that extra day. Yeah. Okay, I had it backwards. Do you know why I'm so relaxed? Why? Because I, I? I got some CBD gummies. <laughs> On CBD, bro. So if you need a CBD gummy. It just calms you. Yeah, it just calms you. Those things are so fucking expensive. Like, I feel like it'd be a waste on me. Um, It's a little expensive, but you know what? Because of anxiety and shit, I don't drink coffee anymore. Mm. So I feel like $2 for a gummy instead of a cup of coffee is fine. Yeah, but we'll let it be for you. If I need to calm down, I'll go spank one out or something. <laughs> You're going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a creep. Not uh, cute creep. I'm sorry I keep sniffling into the mic. I'll probably be too tired to edit that out. <laughs> what are we watching? Wormwood. This is recommended. So few, many times. Several times. But the request that I drew out of the hat comes from Karen Sweepin' Hunter, who made us that little ornament thing, you remember? Karen, we love it. So You're a good Karen. The Yeah. There's a, a Karens are getting a bad rap lately. You're one of the good ones, Karen. Because that name Karen has been associated with entitled women who yell at food service workers. Mm-hmm. Like Kids Bop Karen. Yeah. That lady's name is not Karen. Oh, no? No. No, we don't know what her name is. No, the internet just dubbed just her. dubbed her Karen. Kids Bop Karen. Well, Karen, I just want you to know. I know Bob said it was an ornament, and I know it was at Christmas time, but it still is hanging up yeah, it'll in never a proudly displayed place in our house and always will be forever. Karen, thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, we're talking about Wormwood, the Errol Morris series, which we've been wanting to see. You know what the problem with doing a documentary theme podcast is? Hmm. That it actually prevents me from watching <laughs> documentaries. It does. 
Because I'm like, should I be recording this? I know, because there was something I wanted to watch the other day, and I was just going to maybe watch this documentary with one of our other friends who's not involved in the podcast, and the first thing you said was, do y'all want to record it? Yeah, right? And I was like, I can't just have fun. Like, even myself, though, like, I want to watch that Bikram yoga documentary, but I keep waiting for you to do it so I can watch it with you when you do it. I don't know when you're going to get around to that if you're going to. But because we're watching so many documentaries for the show. There's always something happening. Yeah, like, I I feel like my movie time, um, I'm getting a little back into the artsy-fartsy movies lately. Mm -hmm. I think that... that stems from watching tons of documentaries. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I feel like I want to devote, if I'm going to sit and watch a movie, it'll be something artsy-fartsy or a Fast and the Furious movie, which I unabashedly love. I'm really excited about this new one. They're mm-hmm. fucking driving on a bridge as it's F9. collapsing. Yeah, bro. F9. John Cena's in that motherfucker. That's Dom's brother. And you know what's more important? Han's back. I know. Han's back. Do you think the next one will be called FX? Fast X. For 10? Yeah. Fast X. They got to end it though. I mean, I'm I'm an apolo- I'm a Fast and Furious apologist. I hate it when people are like, oh, this is so dumb. No, you're fucking dumb. Shut the fuck up. All it's right? It's good. It's good. I will- are they all equally good? No. Mm. Are they all fun? Yeah. Mm. Don't hi-hat me with your anti-Fast and the Furious talk. Yeah, I watched all the Fast and Furious when I was sick, and it helped me heal. I watched all of the Harry Potter movies when I was sick. One or two were good, I thought. Yeah, that one is really good. Which series do you think is better, the Harry Potter series or the Fast and Furious series? There's a right answer. This is another Fast and Furious. Yeah, Fast and Furious. Uh, the Godfather series or Fast and the Furious? Do I have to count two? No, three is the one you don't want to count. Oh, I don't want to count three. If three didn't exist, <laughs> then Godfather. it would be Godfather. But three's bad. But three's bad. So we right, get... two's good because it does the history like his dad and stuff. Oh, two's, Al Pacino. Two's dope. One and two are great. Uh, wait, this is a little tough. Okay. Mission Impossible series. Oh. And the Fast and the Furious series. Okay, so I'm going to have to say Mission Impossible because I love them so much. But listen, the thing is, I also haven't seen all the Fast and the Furious. I've seen bits and pieces. When you were sick, I was like in and out because you were sick and I still had to do my job and clean the house and cook and shit. But like, I've seen all the Mission Impossibles, but can I tell you the theme of or plot to any of them? No, sir, I, I- cannot. I can tell you the one with the helicopter, the one where the aquarium exploded, the one where that might be all I've got. See, oh, the one where he hung from the ceiling. This is why I think Fast and the Furious might have an edge, because I think maybe in a lot of ways the Mission Impossible movies are better executed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I often get lost in the plot in them. I'm just like, oh, I'm a little confused. I'm just going to enjoy these action shots. And Fast and the Furious, you might think that, but then you got to remind yourself, oh, there's no real, there's no, there's no plot here. Right. And the, with the Fast and the Furious, for me, it's like the one where Michelle Rodriguez was not there, the one where Han died, the one where they had to do the weird CGI of when that guy passed away that was very, very, very sad. That's what those mm, are. Like, it's yeah. just, 
who was in which one. Uh, dumb. <laughs> I think What's they won't up? stop until he actually dies in real life and he's never going to die in real life. So we're going to have like 50 Fast and the Furiouses. Yeah. I don't know if I can hang with all of them, mm-hmm. but we'll see. But we're not talking about. <laughs> no, we're talking about Wormwood. It's about absinthe, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> that was my joke. I think that's it's about conspiracies. And, what's that government con- brainwashing conspiracy that's real? M. Madam Butterfly or? No, no, no. It's like in numbers. It's like. um. M18. Wait, I think I can that's a. Never Bri- I think rem- that's the British intelligence okay. service or something. I can never remember what this is. It's the one where they took like supermodels, right, and like brainwashed them. Yeah. To like take pictures with politicians when they were drunk and then dosing people and experimenting. I swear it's like. I know someone goes out of a window. I remember that from like the trailer. Oh, I haven't even seen the trailer. Also, the scenes. Errol Morris usually does these um, shots of reenactments that not overtly focused on yeah, people. Yeah, shadowy. This is the opposite. No. He's got he's got actors up in this piece. Errol. Yeah. He's got Tim Blake Nelson. I don't know who that is. He played uh, the looking glass from Watchmen. The guy with the mirror face. Oh, and he was in. Well, I don't uh, know what his face looks like. You never saw. He took the mask <laughs> off, hon. I don't remember. And um, that was in the movie, right? I don't know. He was. Um, the new series is good. Though. Remember, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yes. He was the guy. <gasps> yes. That wasn't George Clooney or John Turturro? Oh, Mirror Man in the Looking Glass in the TV show. Yeah. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Really did, bad with names. Did you ever watch Ballad of Buster Scruggs, that Coen Brothers movie on Netflix? Only some of it, but I know he was in it. It was good. I only watched, I think, the first He's one. He's the opening part. It was actually really yeah, funny. I anyway, some of his Tim Blake stuff. Nelson is great. And I he know he's in great, it. great, but this is a departure from like normal. And I think the guy who played the dude in The Killing, the, the murderer from The Killing, is Really? In it. I forget his name. He's kind of handsome, you know? Which season? Dorf. Is it Stephen Dorf? Is he in The Killing? Stephen Dorf is handsome. Remember he was in The Killing? Not the Dutch version, the American version. The TV show? Yeah. Now I'm referencing a show that barely anyone probably watched. <laughs> we loved it, though. Yeah. There were a couple different seasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Took place in the, the gritty streets of Seattle. You know you gotta show me people's faces, usually. Then Blake Nelson has a pretty memorable face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. looks like he would if he could dress like Droopy Dog at a Halloween party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello. He should always be an Old West deputy. Yeah. He he definitely has that country. He can play a countryfied dude real well. But yeah, all that shit. Mm-hmm. We still can't remember the name of that program. Operation Paperclip. Does that mean something? That is something, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. I really thought the one with like all the ladies, it's the thing that some people think Jean Benet was involved in too. Yeah. Right? Isn't that the brainwashing thing? Ah, uh, I don't know if that's connected. That's like proven to be true from like the 70s. I don't know. I don't, she's not connected, but people have said that. It's a conspiracy theory. I know. I think a lot of people kind of like link those things, but like. It she's is tied true. to like every conspiracy theory in the book. But though. the government did try to do hallucinogenic experimentation, mm-hmm. messing with people's brains. 
We're not making that up. They even they even referenced it in Stranger Things. Yeah. What the fuck is it called? I want to say it's like M80. Can you please look it up? You're sitting in front of a computer. All right, hold on. You're not standing. You're sitting in front of a computer. This Mac is ancient. Wait, I'll use my phone. It's better. You know, we're about to watch the fucking thing. I know. I'm sad I can't drink coffee anymore. It's not just anxiety. It's also heart heartburn. I'm old. We're old. MK Ultra. MK? I know it was an M, but no numbers. Hey, congr- good job knowing the letter M's in there, Angela. Thank you. You did good. Thank you. Wormwood by Errol Morris. Let's do it. And the third angel sounded. And there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you mean Peter should have ate his wife out? Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. He didn't need to put her in a shell, just like, eat eat it. Are you talking about Peter Sarsgaard? No, but he can too. <laughs> he, he can get it? <laughs> yeah. I thought he was, I think I said he was Steven Dorff. He's Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah, you did say Steven Dorff. Although, I used to have a crush on Steven Dorff too, when I was younger. Do you, I feel like they kind of have some uh, of a look. There's a vibe. I understand what you're talking about. Molly, speaking of hot, Molly Parker's in here. She was in Deadwood. She plays this dude's mother. That Who's playing the wife? Yeah, she's a Canadian mm-hmm. actor. She also played the Senate whip. And I watched the early House of Cards seasons. I didn't pick it up after Spacey, um, you know, did his crimes or... After it was brought to light that he did his crimes. I knew from the beginning that 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 he was shit. Really? No. Just remember the first episode of that show, we started watching it. And as soon as he turned to the the audience and was like, let me talk to you now. I was like, nope, I'm not watching this show. You know, he's lately been putting out like yearly videos in that voice. The one he's got holding like a, a coffee mug that shows the coronation of like some knighthood ceremony or something to do with the British monarchy. Prince Andrew is also connected with Jeffrey Epstein and Kevin Spacey has also been on flight logs on the Jeffrey Epstein flight. Conclusions can be so deceiving. Miss me? Wow. I need to work on my headspace. I need to talk to someone. Wormwood. Wormwood. The star fell from the sky. It was called Wormwood, right? Yeah, was that from the Bible? 
Yeah. It sounded biblical, what he was reading. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. It was like, third star falls from the sky and it shall be called Wormwood. Party. Yeah. And the waters turn to Wormwood. Hell yeah. But we later find that he will hide during that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so was that even what he was reading? We get some people. We get some people dressed like feds, but also it's the sixties and seventies. Men of a certain age all dressed like they were working for the federal government or something. Kinda, yeah. Unless you were like uh, a dock worker or one of those kind of guys, you know. Yeah. An old union teamster guy, maybe. You you had that look, and then you had like suit and tie, generic suit and tie. But um, that's where we meet Peter Sarsgaard and his buddy. Something's weird. Something's up. He seems a little out of sorts, wouldn't you say? For sure. And then suddenly he tosses his own ass out the window. We kind of knew this going into it, sort of. I didn't. And then we get a long intro of Peter Sarsgaard falling. Yeah, very long intro, during which I was... It was so cinematic that I was having doubts that this was... (laughs) documentary for just a second i was like this looks like the start of a movie and then it has that like netflix original story which to me sounds like it's not going to be real i mean i know that it is but i have some i have some questions about some things that we're seeing we got something that like maybe errol has experimented with off and on throughout his career i think he's done other things and uh other things Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but this is something from Errol that we haven't really seen that much of uh, to this level. We've discussed he do, usually does reenactments and we've praised his reenactments in the past. Yes. Being able to convey the reality, like the drama of a situation without relying on like very blatant, straightforward acting. But this is the opposite of that. There's straight up acting going on, but there's actors involved. Yeah, like real legit. We said Peter Sarsgaard, the guy you mentioned earlier. In the pre-record. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson shows yeah, up. Yeah, he's Molly really Parker. great. Molly Parker. There's some good people in this, and they're doing some good acting. I don't know if I'm there yet. No, yeah. Like, I feel like I like, I'm fine when they're on the screen, but there's certain cinematic flares that he's doing. I don't, I'm fine with the story. I'm definitely willing to move forward and see what goes on, because I know he has the ability to really build this up. Yeah. But... But I'm not, I'm not like sold yet on a lot of the flares, especially with this intro. You know what it made me think of? If it was like, I, I was like, I felt like this had like a Coen Brothers vibe. Oh, see, I was getting like Hitchcock. There's probably Here's some of that why. too, but sure. Well, like some of, okay. Everything's shadowy. Yes. But also, did you notice we actually see Errol in this? Yeah, a little bit. When he's talking to the son of the man who. Threw himself out of the window. Right, because we talked to him. We talked to him. Errol's getting a little bigger. He kind of mm. looks a little bit like Hitchcock. That's kind of mean, I'm not trying Angela. to be mean. He he, get, he's getting older. I just, it seemed like an homage in a way. <laughs> seeing him only from profile. At one point, it seemed like he was framing an image of the son of this guy through like a blurry shot of his shirt and neck. Yeah, there's some interesting splices. Yeah, you could say of the film. And there's some there's some visual experimentation going on, and a lot of the way things are framed, it does it is very Errol Morris. Mm. But then there's little things where it's just like 
I don't know about that part. It's like, huh, 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 huh. Yeah. We're just starting this shit, but like, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm here for the train ride. I'm not ready sure. to. I'm not, not ready to blow the whistle that hard yet. Real quick, I'm gonna run through what we've learned. Yeah, this guy. So far. His son. Man who fell out the window's name is Frank Olson. Yeah. What we find out from his son uh, is... The grandfather of Mary John, uh, Mary Kate and Ashley. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unaffiliated. Okay, you sure? <laughs> Not positive, but I'm pretty sure. All right. Um, so, 1953, Rouette comes to the house and tells them... Basically says, your father's had an accident. He jumped or fell from a hotel window. Mm -hmm. That phrase alone (laughs) fucks this guy for the rest of his life. Like, his little brain cannot understand how, first of all, it's an accident. If you fell from a hotel window, how the fuck did you manage that? Yeah, he either jumped or fell from a window. But it was an accident. Hey, your dad said I could have his baseball cards. I know this is awkward. (laughs) Basically, it was almost like he was saying, your dad said I could have his wife. Um, (laughs) Not really, but... I mean, Molly Parker, I mean, you got to make a move, right? Yeah, well, they (laughs) kind of implied that he was like being a little flirty with her before Mm. they had gone on this trip because we kind of go back and forth in this timeline. But but basically what did Eric, he's not a kid anymore, obviously... But he talks about how, like, he found out this had happened, and then he wanted to talk to his mom about it, but she wouldn't talk to him, and everybody kind of just acted like everything was fine when he always knew something was wrong. Yeah. But everyone else seemed to just sort of, it was a mystery, but they just took it. He says something later about how one of the most confusing things was that his father just disappeared. He went away on this trip, and he died, but when... The casket came back to them. They were like, you can't open this casket. You don't need to see this. I'm going to tell you right now. It's full of snakes. Like, you know, like the can. <laughs> you can't handle it. I would have to see. Yeah, of course. I'd have to. You know. I don't care how bad it was. I would have to see because I don't think I could believe it unless I saw. You know, I think there's a, a phase that people go through when they... Look at the breadth of the way our country or government operates, right? And it's like, I see a lot of people, I've seen certain friends deal with this. Some people deal with this outwardly and others. And, you know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt in terms of how we uh, project onto our so-called political establishments and shit. You know, you go through these methods where you realize the corruptibility of everything and how kind of, when you're like, do we have... Are, is our is what little comfort we got relying on the destruction of other things? You know these little thoughts like that, sure. and so your brain goes into this thing where it's like, oh my god, we might be the enemy sometimes. Like we might not, this might not be as wholesome and innocent when you really look between the lines of how things run. For sure, and these things aren't. I'm not talking about secrets here. This is something that, like, if you pay too much attention to, it can kind of make you go crazy. But this guy, he didn't just have this, like, you know, through his own machinations. He points out how he wasn't, like, he didn't have the luxury to be separated from this and looking on. Yeah. He he experienced those emotions overwhelmingly through the death of his father and the circumstances surrounding stonewalling 
every question he has regarding his father, mm-hmm. who he is obviously extremely attached to. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't just come to him philosophically. It hit him directly through his own dad. Yeah. He was like nine? Yeah. Something like nine. That's insane. To at that young be like eyes open to the fact that there's some crazy high up bullshit. Yeah. And it's like directly affecting your life. You can't ignore it. So, flash forward. This happened in 1953. So in 1975, so 22 years, there's an article in the newspaper that says scientist threw himself from a hotel because he was on LSD that the government gave him without his knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, it's hard to imagine that shit. Can you imagine that in the Washington Post right now? Jesus, no. They'd have to run it by Jeff Bezos. God. (laughs) Isn't that the... Democracy. Isn't that the Amazon guy? (laughs) Well, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. They own majority stake of it. So... Jesus. Well, democracy dies in darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you know that? Yeah, 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 That's the Washington Post motto. Hmm. You should read the New York Times editorial page. You might realize that you don't make enough money, actually. Who does? (laughs) Good point. Literally, there's two kinds of people. The ones that don't make enough money and the ones that make way too much money. Those are the two (laughs) kinds of people. In this world. And the, 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 the people who make too much money, they have an army of middle managers. Who don't make enough money. Yeah, who to defend them, though. Yeah. <laughs> Ber- yeah. Bernie Sanders, 2020. Yeah, look. <laughs> so shit's just getting deeper and deeper. Dad's tripping out. What's going on? We mentioned it before. MK motherfucking Ultra. Yeah, so things start coming out. They First of all, they have to make someone tell them, yes, this was your father. Rouette's allowed to tell them, yes, this was your father. Yes, it was the government. Communist countries are reporting uh, that the Americans are experimenting on their own people. Now, this and also... And look, we're all doing it. Well, this also is on the back of the Rockefeller Report. Yeah. Watergate has happened. Yeah. Shit's just blowing up all over the place. Don't trust the government because they're tapping your phones, they're reading your mail, they're putting LSD in your drinks. CIA dudes are telling like lawyers like, hey, you think Watergate's crazy? You should see what we're oh, doing. That- and then they tore their face off to reveal that they were <laughs> reptilians. Seymour Hirsch, he's the guy that broke the Watergate story. Yeah. He also broke this story. Right. People should talk about this as much as they talk about Watergate. Truly. Yes, but see, that's the thing. I think that this sort of got, we'll see where this series goes. I feel like going into this, the most I know about MKUltra comes from conspiracy theory and people trying to tie that to other things that may or may not have had anything to do with it. Do you know what I mean? I don't personally know the true story about it, which is what I'm excited about here. Like when you point out the JonBenet Ramsey. Yeah, like it's been mentioned. That by different people, like on, you know, that, that that could have been part of what was up is that her mom was part of that program and then maybe she was too. I, but. Think, I think I think this kind of both keeps these kind of conspiracies alive, that kind of thing, but also maybe discredits them where they need to be. 100%. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is one of those that 
people don't know as clearly about it. And then all these other little, like, weird, wormy stories get, like, integrated into other things. And then it becomes a thing where you hear it and you're like, oh, that's not real. That was in Stranger Things. There's, uh, you know? (laughs) I know the Franklin cover-up, which is too too intense to truly... That's literally why shouldn't why doesn't someone do like an eighty hour podcast on this? It would take up that much time. But yeah. the, but there's accusations in the Franklin cover up of high ranking politicians feeding underage boys and girls drugs, ones that have been groomed and put into sex trafficking, mm-hmm. and they're being fed drugs. And these victims are reporting to report like. High level, like people like George Elder George W. Bush, mm-hmm. like, oh, they uh, had sex with us. Also, they did satanic rituals where they like sacrificed infant children and like ate them. And to me, it's like, well, they're going through these psychoactive manipulations, mm-hmm. like in the MK Ultra style. I don't believe that they did like sit like satanic baby sacrifices, but were they like pedophiles? That part's. Pedophile rings are a lot more easier to believe than them than picturing George W. Bush uh, hailing Satan and then eating a baby. That's the part that is manipulated to lend to a discredit nature. You make them think that crazy things happened, not just you were being abused, yeah. but also all these other things happened that no one's going to believe you about. Yeah. Like they could have been being manipulated while under the influence right. of drugs to think these other things were happening. It's such a deep. Hey, get Dark the, hole. Get the Secret Service guy to dress up like an alien and walk yeah. into the room. Fuck yeah. That way this kid will have that uh, in his story. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's insane, but it's possible. But dude's dad, what did he do? Okay, so he um, he had gone to school to for basically agriculture. And he became a scientist. And he was a biological scientist. Or a bi- I'm sorry, a bi- bacteriologist. Okay. And so... The person who was his advisor got him involved in a biological warfare project at Fort Detrick, which was right near where they lived. So he worked at Fort Detrick and was involved in this, like, bio-warfare project that he had been running, but had recently stepped down and his new boss had taken over. So... That's fishy to me, too, because of all this stuff going down. It almost makes you think, just saying that, that they wanted to get rid of him because of stuff he knew. Because if he's going to step down, he's obviously not one to lead this charge that they're wanting him to lead. Or they didn't think that he was up to this task, whatever that is. So family is wanting some answers. Absolutely. And they're, they're advised not to go through a lawyer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they go to a lawyer. And then they get contacted and they're like, oh, the president wants to talk to you. Yeah. Go through Honest Congress. That's what we call them, Honest Congress. Yeah. Well, that's literally what President Ford says to them. Like, he's the one that says that. He's yeah. like, we're so very sorry for what happened. Yeah. They get, he talks to them directly and In everything. the Oval Office. Oh, and, and like they talked to like Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Or they didn't talk to like, them. Well, they're, they're the monsters in this time, just as they were monsters Well, later. that's the thing. They're the monsters behind the scenes. They didn't meet them. They only met Ford. He was lovely, charmed them to death. He convinced them to not go through the court system, to go through Congress. But then they found letters later that it was all a manipulation. Like, the whole idea was Rumsfeld and Cheney's idea. Fucking Dick Cheney, man. Like, I wish I believed in hell. They've been literally fucking us over for decades. I wish I believed in hell. Oh, yeah. 
the blood on their hands. It's an it's. It's literally unbelievable. Where's the Mussolini necktie when you need it? Yes, queen. <laughs> anyway, so Gerald Ford rubs them, gives them all hand jobs. They get off. Uh, and then they, the family has like a little interview and the son talks. And had three objectives. One was that there be full disclosure of all information relating to my father's death. The second was that the CIA would give assurances that this would never happen again and they recognized that this was an illegal act which was done and the third was that there be a financial settlement with the family i think we all felt after today meeting with the president that there was a kind of a healing effect in his expression on behalf of the, the american people of apology and sympathy i think we all responded to that very much and look politicians are savvy dude oh well here's the thing the reason they went to see the president is because they did a press conference at their home and they were like this happened and we're gonna get to the bottom of it and that's when rumsfeld and cheney and whoever the fuck else was involved yeah. were like oh shit we got to put a lid on this yeah because if they sue us and they win we're gonna have to give them info that we are not giving them and that's why they couldn't let it go through the court because they knew they were they they knew they would lose and they knew they'd be required yeah. to give this stuff. So they had to convince them, oh, you're going to lose. So they schmooze them up, convince them not to do it. And then they do this, like you said, another like interview afterwards where they're like, we're just, we're just so glad. The mother literally, and it was breaking my heart because she was like. The tragedy that happened to the family uh, was very deep and very real. And uh, it was committed by the government and it should not have happened. But I think it is remarkable and it should be noticed that American family could call a press conference and receive uh, communication through the press and to the President of the United States. I think that is a tremendous tribute to our country. Our legal system is run on making deals yeah. before you actually go into trial. Yeah. Our legal system is run on the pattern of trying to prevent people from pursuing their constitutional rights. Yeah. Every fucking day. And they do it very easily by pointing out that most individuals, depending on the charge, because most people are like this, do not have the resources to stand up and face legally the things that they are wanting to challenge. Because, mm -hmm. like, for the average person, it's always, like, cops' word versus theirs. So what do you do? You make a deal. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what they did here on a grand level. And dude was talking about how... Oh, presidents never like apologize for a government ineptities directly to a family like this, you know, so that was rare and they were charmed mm -hmm. by that fact. But like, listen, but if it never happens, you really should stop and question why the fuck it happening now? You know, it's funny. You know, what are they hiding? Funny part is uh, while they were at the White House waiting for Gerald Ford to walk in, Ford walked in reached out his hand and then tripped forward and smashed his face on the glass coffee table. <laughs> Classic Ford, falling down and hurting himself. Um, where this leaves us, two, two, three things we should mention, okay? One, they ended up trying to do a private bill through Congress, right? To try. So their goal was they wanted all the information to come out and they wanted the government to promise this was never going to happen again. So that's where we're left with with their story okay. at this moment. So we go back into re reenactment world. They are there. We're at a cabin. Yes. Dad's at a cabin with some dudes. Mm -hmm. Why is he there again? So this is where he and Ruette. This is where they went when they left the house that day. They go to the cabin. 
they haven't actually said why they're there. Okay. But these other two men are part of this program somehow that they're working with. And they basically dose. They dosed more than one person. But we only follow... Well, he's the one on stage, as they say. Yeah, but, which is curious, but they put drips in more than one drink, I thought. I could be wrong. Maybe it was only two. him. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to part two. But, um, but um, yeah, he starts tripping out. Yeah. And they point out that this is a part of what they've been talking about, what they've been wanting to do. Mm-hmm. This is basically a flashback. Obviously, he's not. he didn't come back from the dead to do this. No. So, he's not in a safe space. And he's been dosed with LSD. So he starts tripping. And all he needs is his own couch, a blanket, and some cartoons. Sure. But he doesn't have that. So he's like, oh, fuck. It's like he's been randomly dosed, which is guaranteed bad trip. It shows him in a lake. It shows him running through woods where it seems as though someone's chasing him. And there's lights flashing and there's laughing. I mean, this is very hallucinogenic situation i'm also on the fence with these reenactments partly because we don't know what happened in that cabin unless we find out later that someone told what happened in that cabin is errol making this part up that's what i'm concerned about so we're going to come back with uh, the next part my conscience is captive to the word of god to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Yeah, this is a lot, and we didn't realize until today this is six episodes. I can't even imagine. Well, it was requested. We got to do it. I know, you guys. And I pulled it from a hat. Yes, thank you, Karen Sweetman Hunter. Although, this is a long one. Yeah. There's a lot going on. The longest episodes are 50 minutes, though. Yeah. They average about 40. So it's not awful. Basically, we find out that the cabin that we were talking about last time they obviously left there because that's not where he died. So they came home. We find out that he and Ruette had both been drugged. But he, Eric, oh, sorry, Eric's the son, uh, Olsen, the dad, Frank. Frank Olsen. Thank you. He felt like he fucked everything up. He came back to home and went to the office the next day and was like, you should fire me. He got super paranoid. Yeah, because they were laughing at him. Because, you know, you said that they shined the light on him. We found out that, how do you say the guy's name? Gold, Goldleb? Gottlieb. Gottlieb. I don't know why that's so hard for me. Who was played by Tim Blake Nelson. Who I f- we forgot to point out had like a weird, like um, like a vocal stutter. stutter. Not really a stutter, but like it was. Um... You are the man who know the secrets. We are the man who 
keep the secrets. Our coexistence depends on trust. Yeah. Almost like a Tourette's kind of. We find out that these sort of meetings at this cabin were something that was, that this was happening. These were things that were happening. And the goal was you go there, you drink a spiked cocktail, and then they ask you questions about the project and like security. And they, he had called it that night a experimental truth serum. But whatever they ask Frank, he thought he fucked it up royally. And he got really in his head about it. His wife said he was being super weird. When you take hallucinogens, LSD or shrooms and shit like that, it tends to make you very vulnerable. It very much helps to understand what you are getting into when you deal with these things. Because if you don't, you can be in a way very susceptible, very suggestible because the way your emotions come through, if you don't quite understand what's going on, then you are like a vulnerable nerve because... Sometimes even when you know you're on it, you have to keep reminding yourself that mm-hmm. not everyone is feeling this world that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. That's an easy thing to forget. You feel like every little thing has something to do with you. Sure. Whether it be like people laughing at a distance, you could think it could have nothing to do with you. and you're. But the, the, the thought will go through your head. Does that have anything to do with me? You'll think the wind blowing is somehow connected to you somehow. Yeah. So people... I mean, they voluntarily hallucinate to kind of like, you know, tear down those emotional guards and shit. Mm-hmm. And you just, the setting is right. But otherwise, it can, it's very, you can see how it can be a very, I don't want to say effective, because I think it's debatable how effective these programs were and, and what they wanted. It, it just seems like pure experimentation. At this point, it's very early in this whole thing. It lasted from like 52 to 70. Yeah. This is 53. So they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. I couldn't imagine that what they did had enough consistent results to merit uh, a practical function. Yeah. Maybe in these small microcosm things or in certain areas of manipulation, I guess, regarding intelligence. But in terms of consistent application, I couldn't imagine that they were getting the same results every single fucking time. Yeah. Well, and so I forgot this part, but between him coming home... And having had that experience unwillingly. Yeah. And saying that he wanted to be fired from his job. He and his family went to see a film about Martin Luther. Yeah, the reformer who led to things like, what, Episcopalianism and Methodism and shit like that. Yeah, and basically later his wife said, maybe we didn't go to the right movie that day. And huge anti-Semite too. Yeah. This is, uh, I I was baptized Methodist. Anyway. This film had an effect on him. Then Eric kind of lays out this timeline that then we get into much more deeply. But basically what happens is he comes home from this trip. They go see this movie. The next day he tries to quit his job or like tries to get himself fired. Yeah. Then like the very next day, I believe, is they go to D.C. because he they've told him he has to go see a psychiatrist. And so his wife gets to ride with him to D.C. She knows the name of this dude that he's with, that he's hanging with. Her name's Vin. She, there's a scene where Molly... Rouette. That's Vin Rouette. Yeah. So there's a scene where Molly picks up the phone like, Vin, what's going on? I gotta go with you. So they're being kind of gaslit into something in regards to the government. And oh, it, sure. And in present time, or at least 1975... 
the family is trying to go deeper and deeper into getting some answers. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, there's a little bit of back padding. Hey, sorry about that. Let me jack you off. But now it's time for the government to straight up like blow them and be like, ah, you know, I don't know. Sorry. Even then, like you said, like they were gaslighting her because Vin obviously knew it was happening, but he'd already laid the foundation for her to trust him. Yeah. Before any of this went down, like what did they say in the first one? Like he was in charge of ma- maintaining the wife. Mm-hmm. Like he was in charge of making sure she didn't go crazy or talk, I the, guess. The family settles for $750,000. They were going for like a million and a half. Because uh, actually like Colby, who was in charge of the CIA, they gave them some papers but not all the papers for sure. Yeah, and that was part of the settlement. Um, they got a little bit of papers. One thing that I thought was super telling that I couldn't believe is, so there's two attorneys in this, but they're interviewed separately because they disagreed very much. One of them thought they should take the plea deal or the uh, settlement. The other one thought, no way, we need to go to court. And the one who was talking about how they need to go to court, like when they went to the CIA that day, he said that everything seemed really normal. And then they went into this run room where there were burn bowls. Yeah. Where they'd obviously been burning documents. It's like they said, this is the bit of shit we're going to give them that Eric said was extremely hard to sift through. Like, so it didn't even make any sense. It was basically giving them nothing. It was a bunch of like, yeah. And they burned everything else. So they could legitimately say to you in complete truth, this is all there is. Yeah. These are the documents that exist because they fucking burn the rest of this shit. But yeah, we find out that he had gone, he, they told the wife he was going to see a psychiatrist and they gave her this name of like Dr. Lashbrook, like that's who took him. But then they went to see this other guy, Dr. Abramson, who was an allergist. But posed as a psychiatrist. Well, here's the thing that I thought that like huge note in my notes so he knew Olson from like school because you know Olson was a biochemist and he knew this guy who was this allergist and they had worked together years before on aerosolization of chemical warfare stuff. Freight. I don't know if I said that word right, but they were working on ways to like fucking put chemicals through your air vents and fuck you up. Frank is kind of complicit in some weaponizing shit here. Yes. And I think he maybe didn't realize you know like how bad the shit was until when he realized it and that's why then he was a liability because you know he knew stuff. No when he at least how it's being laid out is like he starts being changed when he's getting dosed. He's being experimented on. Well and I think like he realizes that but the crazy part to me was he kept saying that he felt like he fucked up the experiment like it wasn't like he didn't want to be involved in the experiment he thought that because he got so personally paranoid that he was gonna ruin it yeah and they tried to tell him there's no wrong way to do this experiment what happens happens but he got in his head that he'd done something wrong because of this laughter or because of whatever yeah, I don't know. I mean, when he went to D or when he went to New York, that's when they never saw him again. Like he went on this like trip, they dosed him. He came home. They went to New York on Tuesday. He he was dead by Friday. One of the last things we see in this is when they take him to the uh, the the broad old Broadway. Yeah, it was a Broadway show and listen, I should know better because of the career I've had. I don't know what fucking show that is. I wish I did because I'm sure it has some relevance. Maybe they'll talk about it more. I don't know. She's Patty Lapone's daughter. You're the Patty, girl who You're Patty oh, Lapone's daughter. I am? No, you are. 
Yeah. Um, we haven't told you guys this, but we're like super rich. Um, <laughs> they don't even believe that. No. Uh-oh. Gosh, I wish I was Patty Lapone's daughter. That'd be fucking cool. Anyway, I pulled that name out. Of I my love ass. my mom. I know that she's on stage. She's amazing. She's you actually pulled one of the greats yeah. out of your ass. Okay. So sure. good job. Cool. I care. Um. Oh. Oh. So also, can we talk for one second about the weird contraption that Dr. Abramson put him in? I wrote down the 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 stuff. Do you want me to tell you? Sure. He was laying oh, yeah, down. Yeah, the dome. The dome. He was laying down. There was this box with a dome over his head that he could kind of see through, but not really. His hands were covered in these like mittens without thumbs. Like it basically looked giant socks on his hands that were like taped closed. His feet were in stirrups and he was wearing headphones inside the dome. And Dr. Abramson was asking him ridiculous questions like, through a microphone, though he was sitting two feet away. Name the number that rhymes with the name of a very tall plant. A number? I don't know. This is confusing. I'm sorry? It's confusing. I don't think they had him on anything yet at that point. He was just... That fucking it, exhausted. That it looked, just looked ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. My favorite device is from Burn After Reading the Exercise Bike where the dildo comes yeah. up in the seat. <laughs> he should have put it in you say you were going to build me one of those one day? Oh, are you calling me on that? You said you were going to make me one. I think, I think it was on this podcast. I'll have to test it out first. <laughs> Okay, learning things about you still. <laughs> hey, it's fine. Hey, this is a safe 14 space. Fourteen years in, still, still surprises. <laughs> and then as he was leaving, he was like, "Hey, let me give you something to help you with your anxiety." And he hands him like a tin, which I'm assuming had pills. And then he also goes, some "And booze. this will take the edge off." And it's some booze. Well, then before they go to that Broadway show, where spoiler alert, he freaks out and has to leave, but. The guy who's with him, Vin, Vin, is like, why don't you drink some of that whiskey? He drinks some of it and then offers some to Vin, and Vin's like, Oh, I'm strictly a gin man these days. Which he also, like, later will drink gin martinis with the wife after the death. Oh. Are we getting into Vin, like, being becoming a stepdad here? I don't think so. No. No. Okay. I mean, I think that he might have tried to... I'm doing quotes, comfort her after. But basically, he used to go over go over and feed her martinis and talk to her. And Eric said his mom became an alcoholic from this. Oh. So I don't think that. I think he was just trying to, like, it's easy convince to see her happen. she didn't need to ask any questions, you know? He was probably the one telling her, don't listen to Eric asking these questions. He doesn't need to know anything else. You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, collages. Oh, yeah. He made a lot of collages. So that was Eric's thing. Was collages. So they talk about how he was into psychology. And the way that he was approaching it was making all these collages that had all these various images on this huge book that was like two by three feet. And what you would do is show this to someone and see what they gravitate towards. So if you have this huge spread of six feet, six square feet in front of you, and you gravitate towards a burning building or a jungle or, you know, the woods at night, it can say something about what's going on with you. 
That was my understanding it, of what it, he was working it on. It seemed like he had a big image book and then also did collages. Like the the big image book was like a different thing. I think it, well, it was tied together. Yeah. It was part of the same work. It was part of the same body of work. But yeah, he did do the collages. And he actually said that Vin sort of got him started on that. Hmm. Like Vin gave him the means to start that project when he, he had his dad's old camera after his dad died. And Vin gave him like photo enlarging equipment and like a jigsaw so this is an interesting way where he kind of is blowing off steam and it implies that he subconsciously set up this piece that shows a picture of a dude falling from a window with some lady's head overlaid it and it really pushed that it almost was a subconscious thing Mm -hmm. which seems a little strange to me this guy seems pretty curious and aware like yeah, it didn't seem like he would have done that and not realized it was his father yeah, or that it was an image how like could, his If father. your father jumped out of a building and you ever see any image of someone jumping out of a building from then on out, it would almost be impossible not to think of your father in that instance. Well, and they said it was the that was the first collage he ever did. And it was a man falling from a building. It actually had a clock at the bottom. That was what was... And there was like different faces and stuff too. But they said something about that being significant. We'll see if they come back to that. Unless he claims that he doesn't remember making it and was surprised when he found it. I don't know. So he has to leave this play because he's feeling jacked up and he and Vin take off and the third guy stays there. But before we go, we almost forgot after the settlement. Yes. I was his gonna... sister and her husband were flying up to upstate New York during a snowstorm. Their two-year-old child is in the car. She's pregnant. Oh, in the plane. In a in like a little charter plane, like mm-hmm. a tiny little thing. It's in a blizzard. They crash and they die. Yep. Her husband was wanted to take some of the money that they got from the settlement and invest in some logging company upstate. Yeah. So it doesn't really imply that there's any foul play there. I mean, if no. you're in some tiny little plane... And it's a fucking blizzard out. It just seems like common sense you shouldn't fly in that. Well, and the pilot died too. Yeah. So I think he probably either didn't care, wasn't paying attention, or the guy gave him money to go do it anyway. We don't know. We will never know that. But I don't think that that was conspiracy. So that was just another layer uh, to his losses that really kind of... And a lot of that is what led into this collage work and shit. Well, and Eric said, too, after that, he went away to Sweden for a while. Like, mm. he sort of just left the U.S. Yeah. for long periods after after that happened. Yeah, just no trust. But yeah. that's pretty much that episode. Yep. Kind of sad. Yeah. Hmm. Early in the Korean War, the Chinese and North Korean communists began making accusations that the United States was resorting to germ warfare world paid little attention to these obvious propaganda charges and in an apparent attempt to manufacture something that resembled proof the Chinese early in 1952 began an elaborate campaign to extort false confessions from captured American Air Force personnel I forgot to mention at the end of the last episode that after he came back, 
feeling probably tripping again. Mm-hmm. You got the vibe that Frank, when he wasn't at home, was dosed all the time. Yes. But his uh, government buddies, Vin and what's-his-name, uh, could not find him in his room. He was later found on the street after he had dumped the contents of his wallet out. Yeah, he'd gone out in the street, dumped his contents, and he was just like sitting in the lobby of the hotel. And he and he said that they had told him to do it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, uh, I think we were just dreaming there, buddy. Yeah. And who's to say what what is true there and what isn't? Yeah. So, because they could have been fucking with him. Yeah. Or he could have truly been dreaming. There's literally no way to know. So Frank is deep in with these dudes. Needless to say, he doesn't make it home for Thanksgiving, as is the desire there. Mm-hmm. I like how that shot of the family, all the kids are sitting on one side of the table for dramatic shot purposes. Yeah, it was very like sitcom, single cam <laughs> situation. But we get stuff about this Gottlieb dude. Yeah. Dude, so He's a deep intelligence guy. He's attempted assassination attempts on Castro. This democratically elected leader in the Congo. Mm-hmm. One of few in that country that was democratically elected. He, of course, America. America doesn't give a fuck about democracy. <laughs> that is just the goddamn truth. They want you to elect what they want you to elect. Yeah, no one else gets to have democracy except us. We don't even pick our own leaders. True, I know. Through like a basic dem- democratic process. No, there's a totally controllable system even in, in the place. primaries the democratic fucking primaries they're like uh delegates not popular vote yeah but did but of course if you say what what do people say when donald trump says he won the election they say hillary got four million plus votes mm-hmm. but the democratic party doesn't even decide their own primary that Anyway. It's broken. It's broken. <laughs> um, but what we find out, like, they start looking into, you know, Lashbrook and Gottlieb came to the funeral yeah. when Frank died. And so Eric's, like, looking back at these names, he's like, I really got to find out more about these people. And so they start going and visiting people who were involved in this. In around 1984, he and his mom and his brother, because his sister's gone at this point. 1984, Orwell. Oh, yeah. Um, they went and visited uh, Pastore, who was the night clerk at the hotel that night. And apparently he remembered everything very well. We haven't gotten his recount yet. I'm sure that's coming. He and Eric become really good friends after this. This had apparently really messed up Pastore. Then they go visit Lashbrook. And he says something very interesting. So he was Gottlieb's assistant. Okay, Lashbrook was a chemist. He was sort of the connection between the CIA and Dietrich, the Fort Dietrich. And so at the time when all this went down, everyone said that Gottlieb was in New York. Uh, sorry, Gottlieb was not in New York. He was back doing his business. He didn't care about what was happening in New York. But Lashbrook in 1984 said Gottlieb was in New York the entire time. Oops. Oops, yeah, they pointed out that it's been so long, you forget what your cover-up story yeah. was supposed to be. Lashbrook's an old man by now. This is why I don't try to lie that much. You <laughs> can't figure out. I can't remember that <laughs> shit. Uh, they went to see Rouette, and they really didn't get a lot of info from them that, they, that from him that they shared. But basically, 
Eric looked at him in the face and said, was my father a risk? At any point, did you consider him a risk? And Rouette said no. Mm-hmm. And then when he tried to question him, saying, then why did this happen? Why would you drug him? Why would you do all this stuff? Like, why was all this stuff happening if he wasn't a risk? It actually doesn't make any sense that he wasn't a risk because he was a man who knew important things, who was being drugged and messed up because of that. And we were, Bro, we were hazing him in our frat, bro. We had right? him so dosed up to his gizzards, bro. Total denial. Yeah. They go and see Cy Hirsch, the journalist, who mm. cracked this story and also Watergate, right? He basically told them the consensus is... At the time, the CIA would have never killed a colleague. Never. But he also looked Eric in the face and said, you are too smart to get involved in this. You should probably leave it alone. Basically, reading, you're going to probably get in too deep, bro. Bro. Maybe you don't want to keep going down this road. Yeah. Which makes me think that Sid Hirsch, who obviously is someone who wants the truth to be told, Maybe he knows some stuff that he's not even comfortable knowing. I really would love to know what that man knows, knew. I don't know if he's still around, but geez. Then they go see Gottlieb. He's like living off the beaten path, like farming or something. And he's feeling himself. He's feeling himself. And Eric said he and his family got there. They walk up to the door. And the first thing Gottlieb says to him is, I had a dream last night that y'all showed up and shot me immediately with a gun. So I'm really glad you don't have a weapon. And he said he felt as though they were being brainwashed immediately. Yeah. He was trying to put himself as a victim. This is me. I'm reading this part in. He said he felt they were being brainwashed the second they got there. He told them that the person he is now is nothing like the person he was then. And he can't even understand the person he was then. And so that means he can't even justify the actions of that person. And Eric's like, okay, whatever, bro. Let's go back to that fucking cabin and relive some shit then. He sounds like a billionaire tech bro. Well, Gottlieb refuses to go back and like get into it. So that's the end of the story. They don't love- get anything from him. Yeah, he... Uh- I love the, these these fucking sociopaths who deal with their issues, not with dealing with the people that they heard it through. Yeah. They just have to do the exercise in their brain, do something semi-positive somewhere else to justify, like, no, no, I'm a good person. It's like when they finally realize they're mortal. Yeah. You know, when that happens, sometimes I feel like really shitty people all of a sudden realize, like, oh, I'm old and I'm probably going to die one day. And so I'm just going to go try to live out the rest of this and pretend I didn't do all those terrible things. Yeah. Serial killers do it. Yeah, totally. I mean, and he essentially, I mean, they said that he was responsible for the thing that happened. He basically killed like 20,000 people, right? In the Viet Cong. Right. It was like a program that involved mass extermination of civilians. Yeah, like that was part of what he was involved in that kind of stuff. Like he's a terrible person. So anyway, back to sort of 1984, Eric says, okay, I've got as much info as I feel like I can get. There's no more papers to be had that he's aware of. He's talked to all these people. He doesn't know what else to do. Let's go to the room. Let's go to the room. He has some chicks. He said like who they were the daughters of, but I couldn't connect those names. I don't recall, but it was these two chicks went with him to this room and they kind of yeah, had like a... A three-way. No, I thought he was going to say 
say that. For sure, I thought he was going to say that. <laughs> I don't know time, why, man. but he was going to just be like, and we got, no, I mean, gross. I think they were connected with reporters and stuff. like they Or were, the lawyers, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I just didn't recognize the names, but it was, it was they're tied somehow to this case in this world. And one of the ladies was like, let's have a moment in this room. Not necessarily a seance, but like, let's be in this room and think about what happened in this room and whatever. And it kind of freaked Derek out. And so he ended up leaving the room and going to like a concert. Yeah. Which, what concert? I know. He didn't say, but. 1976 the, or 84? 84. And the venue he Berlin. said. It was the band Berlin. Is that what he said? No. No, you just know it. I think it's Berlin. He said the venue, which I've heard of the venue before, though I can't recall it at this moment. I mean, he's in New York. It's like a popular. Madison Square Garden? No. no. I, I forget the name, too. I thought I could start with the P. Anyway. Penis. Town. Yeah. He went to Penis Town? <laughs> no, that's what we thought he did. He didn't go to, <laughs> they didn't go to Penis Town. Okay. So he realizes as he later is laying in this room, awake all night, cannot sleep. He realizes you can't jump out that window. There's two ways you get out that window. How do you get out that window? They make it really hard for you to kill yourself these days at hotels. Yeah, they, they actually you do. You really the windows, gotta throw yourself against that glass real hard. The windows don't open, but you do a balcony sometimes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I haven't been in a hotel where the windows open, where there wasn't a balcony, like a door going to a balcony in, yeah. in my life maybe. I think at resorts is when you start getting into windows with balconies that open. In my experience. Probably, yeah. Uh, or those cheap hotels where just like your door is a balcony. Yeah. We've stayed in those places. <laughs> we've been all over. Oh, yeah. We've been all over. Oh, yeah. We're uh, regional travelers. <laughs> so he realizes the only way you're going to get out this window is if you're pushed or you dive. Because there's literally no way you're jumping out this window. There's no ledge. It's got like a bar in the middle of it. So you'd have to, to go through this window it's not like you could crouch in it and leap off. You'd have to be vertical. You're pretty. I'm much, sorry. You'd have to be horizontal. You're pretty much like like if he did it himself, he's wiggling himself through a window until he like trickles and farts out of this window. But the window's broken, right? Yeah. So that's the other thing. The window's broken. So he would have had to be thrown or dive. I can't remember. Here's why I think it broke is because the last scene of this. Oh, yeah. Okay, which we'll get to in literally one second. Because all we need to know now, the rest of this is just that. Two things. Alice talks about how Frank was really upset about Korea. Mm -hmm. At this time, people are saying that chemical warfare is happening in Korea. Well, we're getting... This is all Cold War. And we're getting... um, We're hearing audio of... Joe McCarthy defending his stance on the Red Scare era. Because this was happening in the 50s where a lot of that was, uh, where McCarthy was peaking hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no pun intended. And uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so they go to Korea. The next thing that happened after World War II, a lot of chemical weapons going down, or no biological weapons. And communist governments are accusing the United States of using biological weapons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, the U.S. is always like, uh, this is all propaganda on their part. We all know that. But we're getting verification 
by uh, veterans of that war that was like... When I think of someday, though I'm not married yet, I intend to be, when my son asked me what I did in Korea, how can I tell him that I came over here and dropped germ bombs on people, destroying and bringing death and destruction? And they're on they're on tape saying these things. This All this shit has, like, open courtroom deliberations. There's articles that exist out there. Mm-hmm. There are witnesses. There are people, like, saying on camera. Well, over time, a lot of these veterans that claim that they participated in biological warfare uh, in Korea started backpedaling. I did sign a confession relating to germ warfare, but the statements contained in this confession were false. They were obtained under duress. Yes, I signed that paper, but it was not true. It's like... The Manchurian candidate made me say it. Yeah, they're gaslighting the world. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So that's what his brain was on. He felt guilty because these things were really happening. We know these things were happening. He felt in some way responsible. Now, we don't know what all he was doing. I really hope we find out more about this. He was probably developing these weapons. Yeah, some of these weapons. I mean, because that was the thing. Like, that's what Gottlieb was into. So, and he was like the big boss, kind of. I mean, he wasn't like, Gottlieb was probably masturbating while thinking about all the death and destruction Mm, he was mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. laying forth. I think uh, Frank was just kind of like, he was a smart guy. But, you know, uh, a little bit of self-delusion is probably helpful in that position. So the last sort of like storyline that we need to know before we move on is that this thing happens where it looks as though two days before he dies, they were going to bring Frank home. He's in a car with Ruette and he's basically says, can't you just let me go? I just want to disappear. Yeah. Just let me disappear. Which they try to use later as him set is him being unstable. But his son truly thinks it's like, hey, I get it. I'll just go away. Yeah. And you'll never hear from me. Just let me get out. But they don't. And they take him. They're at this point. They've gone back to Washington. They take him back to Lashbrook. And Lashbrook and Gottlieb's there. And Ruette goes home. Actually, Ruette goes to Frank's family and says, sorry, he's not going to be home for Thanksgiving. But that gets Ruette out of the picture. So he's not there when the shit actually goes down in New York. So they go back to New York. They get on this 13th floor of a hotel, which apparently that hotel had a policy, which is brilliant. I didn't think about this. I'm sure all hotels do this. If they know there's an unstable person, they put them on a low floor. Mm-hmm. They didn't know he was unstable. He was on the 13th floor. That was stupid, first of all, because they're saying he's unstable. They're actually going to, they say they're going to take him to a sanitarium. He calls his wife and says, I'm going to a sanitarium. The other thing that's weird about the New York trip right before they go, apparently he was doing headstands and acting super crazy. This is a more normal part of tripping your ass off. Yeah, well, he starts drinking alcohol. Dancing to old blues jams. But it's almost like he starts drinking some kind of alcohol and it's almost like that loosens up him being in his head so much. Yeah. And yeah, he kind of like, he's dancing, he's having this like seemingly okay time. But obviously then they are like, you're real fucked up. Eric is told about this later that yeah. this occurred and it seems confusing to him, but your dad was tripping. Well, you know, Eric's probably never done anything remotely near that after this whole story. I don't know. He was in college in the, probably the sixties. You might be surprised. Come on. 
I could be surprised, but it just makes me also think that he would not want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. I mean, Depends on which way you go. If your parents are extreme alcoholics, you either drink also or you don't touch it. Mm. I mean, those are the only two options, right? I guess. <laughs> I mean, like you tend to drink a lot or you tend to not. So the night in question, uh, we pretty much know what goes on, but we see the perspective of, the, of one of the other uh, stooges. Lashbrook. Yeah. And he's just sitting there and he's listening to some sounds. So it's 2.30 in the morning on the clock. And he gets up and he puts his watch on and he goes and sits in the bathroom. Taking a huge shit. <laughs> That's what you do at 2.30 in the morning in the bathroom. Don't sit on the toilet. It's too long, folks. No. Get your, get, do your business and then get up. So he hears a door open and close, it sounds like. And a crash. And then someone knocks on the bathroom door. Because mm, the deed's done. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's go next to the other uh, chapter. <laughs> July 13th, 1975. Dear Mrs. Olson, after reading the newspaper accounts on the tragic death of your husband, I felt compelled to write to you. At the time of your husband's death, I was the assistant night manager at the Hotel Statler in New York and was at his side almost immediately after his fall. He attempted to speak, but his words were unintelligible. Having been in the hotel business for the last 36 years and witnessed innumerable unfortunate incidents, your husband's death disturbed me greatly due to the most unusual circumstances of which you are now aware. My heartfelt sympathy to you and your family. When all the talking is done, I clear the words from my head and go to the cold, cold lake. The mystery deepens. But is it really even a mystery? I think it's just confirming what we've thought would probably come out. Yeah. That this murder. Murder by the intelligence uh, branches of the government. The seed's been there since the whole, did he jump or was he pushed? Or did he dive or was he thrown? I mean, that's been the conversation the whole time. Eric's thought his dad was killed this yeah, whole yeah. time. It's always seemed fishy and mm-hmm. vague when things... It's the vagueness when you're seeking answers, you know. You want you expect things are supposed to be thorough and technical, mm-hmm. especially when, like, going through, you know, your basic forensic kind of situation you think would be. I think a lot of it you would glaze over because of how technically precise and... Uh, certain words but you know you deal with certain things and things become very vague and that just makes things is it incompetence or is it corruption you can't the line's very thin it's sometimes corrupt it's convenient to be corrupt if you make it look incompetent yeah and i think they did fall on that in that sort of these are all the papers that we have but that's not all the papers that there were the image of stupidity is much more like benign than evil Looking evil. Yeah, we just didn't we just didn't cover it well because it wasn't really a thing. And that's usually the position of governments, especially after so much time that's passed from this case. Well, and they start out this episode talking about this is the fourth episode. 
talking about how Lashbrook had so many different stories. Like over time, he just couldn't keep his story straight. Because here's the deal. From what we now know, I don't believe Lashbrook is the one who killed him. But Lashbrook was in the room. And so that's got to be traumatic anyway, right? Even if you're not friends with someone, you're there when someone is dead. Yeah. However they're dead, they're dead, you were there. That's fucked up. So then people are asking these questions, and he starts telling all these different stories. Like, first of all, we we find out that he was pretty much taken, like, the cops took him right away to interrogate him. Yeah. Which, of course, you would. Because you don't know what happened. Back in the days when the cops wore their hats all the time. Yeah, and we get a Breaking Bad guy. Oh, yeah. I don't know his real name. He's an evil guy. He's good at playing a cop. That seems to be all he plays. Yeah. It's the Breaking Bad brother-in-law. Yeah. Don't know his name. He's good, though. Hank. Hank in the show. Yeah. Basically, at one point, Lashbrook says that he was woken up because after Frank was out of the room, he heard the blinds. On the window, beating around. At one point, he says he heard like the cartoon. glass break. Like it's a yeah. fucking cartoon. Yeah, like when the blinds go up and it's like... And it made the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Yeah, then he says the glass broke. It's just like, he doesn't... He's not consistent with what happened, what woke him up. Because from what we're led to believe in this, he was hiding in the bathroom. Yeah. During this whole situation. There was a letter, we mentioned the guy, Pastore, the night manager, who seems like a super sweetheart, who ran out immediately to Frank, and apparently Frank did not die on impact. He was alive for at least a moment or two, and he tried to say something, but Pastore could not understand what he was saying before he died. So he was trying to tell. I just wish that had been coherent. Yeah. Because I feel like that might have helped, although who knows, then Pastore might be gone true you know he might have heard if he had been if he had heard something he shouldn't have and he said told the wrong person he could have been gone too yeah because we'll get into people involved are kind of disappearing yeah people get gone yeah so pastore had written a letter to alice very sweet he also had immediately asked the operator of the hotel that night and i don't know when he conveyed this story i don't know if it was later but because he did reach out to alice after this just his condolences But his first question for the operator was, was there any phone calls out of that room? Mm. And the operator said, yes, and it was so short, I listened to the whole call. I've thought about this many times. I think I would have loved to have been an operator. A switchboard. I could. I would have loved to have been a switchboard operator back in the day. You would have. I think you would have done that. Oh my god! I would have been the best at it. Little cardigans and horn drum glasses and listening to everyone's conversations. Yes, Mister. (laughs) Connecting over. Hold, please. And so <laughs> she said that Lashbrook called someone and said, well, he's gone. And the someone said, that's too bad. Which seems sort of benign, but also seems like just a confirmation of a no, deed has been done. No, it seems shady as Jack Living Well, no, fuck. I'm saying it does seem shady, but I'm saying like it's not like we did it, we got him. And good, it's over. Like, they thought they were being... Subtle. They thought they were being subtle. They thought they were being like, well, he's gone. Well, that's too bad. To these, like, men who, whatever, I think they thought, oh, that could sound like... We are so sad. But it's a lot of bullshit. Then Eric tells this really sad story about how he did love a woman at Harvard. 
But this whole thing, like, fucked it up. There's Hamlet parallels throughout this because, you know, Hamlet sees the ghost of his father. It alludes to some measure of corruption in which when you unravel it, uh, seems to unravel everything. Yeah, and he became so obsessed with it that he was completely disconnected any from anything else and was single-mindedly trying to figure out how to expose these people who killed his father. And Hamlet disconnects from Ophelia the same way Eric disconnects from the woman that he loved. And they actually said to him, I thought this was really telling, when Errol said to him, What would you say to Hamlet? And Eric said, I'd say go back to Wittenberg and keep track of Ophelia. I'm sure there's part of him that is satisfied that he's figured out to what extent he's figured this out, but it did ruin every personal relationship he had. The Hamlet thing even drives home because Eric happens to know a friend of the family yes. who has gotten into uh, solving cold cases through forensic uh, analysis. He's become a forensic guy and he specializes in exhuming bodies. You know, that's obviously something they could have never done when Alice was still alive, mm. but they did it. They exhumed him. Yeah. They were going to move his body anyway, which we know that that happens. Sometimes bodies are moved so that people can be buried together after they pass away. They were going to move his body to be buried with the mother. Right. So they brought this guy in. James Starr was his name. Right. I didn't know if you... Okay. And then... Um, I don't remember like a lot of details about James Starr. I don't either. All I remember is that he examined him. And, and found that there's foul play involved. Yeah, there's foul play. So basically what it was is that two things they found. One, no evidence of having gone through glass. Which is weird. There should be deep lacerations. And, and and this body's fairly for the time that it's been in the ground is fairly like you could he points out how you could still see the flesh mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, which which I mean knowing the, that there's the still penis flesh, flesh there. very specifically. And even his penis was still visible. You could you know, there was enough flesh somehow that you could even recognize his sexual organ. He actually did say you could still see the penis, penis flesh. Yeah. He mentioned it penis. We're not joking, specifically. Astounding. They also do show the body, but you can't really see much because sure. obviously it is dark now. You know, there has been some decay, but he was embalmed. But here's the thing. That's why they didn't want them to open the casket. Because in the original autopsy, it said there were lacerations. Yeah. Someone got paid or threatened to put that in there. Why wouldn't any of the family... I mean, I think I know why because it's just so such such a hard thing to go through. Mm-hmm. And even then, what would you do? Because he talks a lot about, like, what if you get the answers you think is right, and then what? And then where do you go from there? The worst-case scenario is to have everything prove that this powerful government agency really did kill your father, and then mm-hmm. what the fuck are you going to do? Well, Half I, the people involved are, like, old, senile, or dying. Some mm-hmm. mysterious deaths. What the fuck are they? And anyone currently involved in the government now could be, like, well, it doesn't seem right, and that was another time, and I'm glad we've all moved forward. Like, Right. The, as time goes on, there's the truth um, is merely just it. There's nothing else that's going to come from it. Yeah. The other thing, no lacerations. He had a huge wound on the front of his head above one of his eyes. Yeah. Which had to have happened in the room. There's some debate between a couple of these forensics as to whether that could have happened as he was going through the window or not. But James Starr is like, no, someone got hit in the head. Then 
just like two years later. Government document dump because so much time has passed. So we get at assassination manuals. Yeah, there's an assassination manual from 1997, which talks specifically. That was released in 1997. <clears throat> right, right, right. And so there's one they talk about specifically related to another country. It might have been Korea stuff. I don't recall. But there was one in particular. And so Eric thought, well, I'm going to go see if I can see this assassination manual. He goes and the lady's like, which one do you want? Yeah, they're like deep thick. We have so many. He says the the first one. The well, 19. he says 53. And she's like, that's the first one. Which is insane. Yeah. The very first one. And guess what? The preferred method was to push someone. Actually, I'm sorry. Drop someone out of a window 75 feet or higher. But before that, you were to give them a blow to the head above one eye to knock them unconscious. That is exactly what they were instructed to do to kill someone. Hit them above the eye, drop them out of a tall window. Mm. That is what the fuck happened. Could the window not open? Was it, was it sealed or painted shut somehow? It had to have been. It, it had why to is have the been. Grass, why is the glass broken? I don't know. Why not just open the window and make it look like he went through it? Why break the glass? It must not have been. They haven't even mentioned that, and I hope they do at some point, but they must not have been able to open it. You could have like a crowbar in the room, right? Just wear gloves and prop the thing open. I've I've moved into houses where the cheap-ass landlord is trying to paint the windows shut to save on energy costs. You know what we did? We went through with a crowbar. We popped open every fucking one of those windows. Okay. I lived... In an apartment building in downtown Clarksville that was a really old hotel Mm -hmm. that they converted into apartments. That window didn't open. Hmm. I don't even know if it had a mechanism mechanism to to even open. Uh, So it might literally not have Hmm. even been possible. Sure. Also, why you need to open a window up that high? Circulating. I mean, I guess. I guess. But also liability. Sure. As a hotel, you probably might say, I don't want people to open this window. That's why you can't open windows in most hotels. Exactly. So So that probably has always been a thing. But that's, I mean, that's like the biggest thing I feel like we learn in this. And then that's when in 19, whatever, right around then, the late 90s, they started a new case. They got, we went to lawyers again and said, okay, now we've got this new autopsy, and now we've got this assassination manual, and we want to go after it. And that's when they couldn't find William Colby. William Colby, remember, was the head of the CIA when this happened. Yes. He fell into, they found his body washed up in a, in like a lake, ravine, or something like that. Yeah, I think they had at first found a canoe that had yeah. washed ashore empty. And the guy's son thinks that he committed suicide because he told him... I might end up at the bottom of this ravine. But that could also just mean, like, I think I know how they'll kill me if they kill me. See, I thought that, too. Like, you just need to be aware that I might get gone soon. Now, maybe he was going to do it to himself. It's possible. And he did say ravine. Out of guilt. But then it ended up being a lake. Who knows? This implies that a lot of people involved do feel guilty. It, it There's the, the overall corruption, but as we see even in the reenactments, mm-hmm. and I really like the reenactments in this episode in particular. This one was really good for that. That, uh, that, that, no one, that people come off cold, but they seem to have pause over what they've done here. 
and uh, especially when this, in the reenactments in this one regarding mm-hmm. Lashbrook. Oh man, yeah. And and it shows actually very scary. This episode was actually quite scary mm-hmm. because you got Peter Sarsgaard. Because uh, at the end of every episode, they sh- have a reenactment that kind of leads into like cliffhangers, basically. Yeah. Peter Sarsgaard wakes up. Keep in mind, he's been dosed and drunk, like probably way too much. And, um, and Lashbrook is looking at him while he's sleeping. It's like, I sure thought you'd make it. But Peter Sarsgaard, Frank, playing Frank, wakes up and there's two dudes that look like G-Men standing in his fucking house and they're not saying anything and they're just kind of hovering around him mm-hmm. and you see uh frank go to the door where lashbrook has locked himself in and he's trying to open the door and he's like open the door hey bob bob come on bob open the door so imagine him like just his dreads just multiplying and multiplying here. Well, then he realizes his friend's not going to help him. And these guys are just standing there. And it's like almost, they're just standing there waiting for him to be consigned to his fate in a way. And then from that point on, whack above the eye, break out the window, drop him out of it. Yeah. Which is what it alludes is happening next, but we get a cliffhanger. It's scary. I really thought that was scary as hell. I thought it was scary too because after he couldn't get in the room with Bob, he kind of backs up towards the window and I thought it was going to happen right then. But he actually sits down and it's like he's trying to get the guys to like talk to him. Yeah. Which is actually one of the smarter things you could do in that moment. Not that it's going to change anything. That's but what he's you like, do to a bear. Like, you guys sit you know, down. If a bear approaches you, you got to talk, talk to it. <laughs> I mean, it's what you do to a crazy person. You say like, Sit with me. Let's talk with each other. You try to make them see that you're like a person. Not that he was going to go that way, but you know what I mean? He was like, y'all sit down. And then it was like, over. Yeah. Creepazoid. Ugh. All right. I hate it. Pot five. The drug testing is a mystery to me in a way. How did the CIA feel that uh, LSD and such things fitted in with national security? When Alan Dulles, who was the director back in those days, authorized this thing to be undertaken, we all felt at the time that it would have been wrong of us not to investigate this area. Who else in the government was going to investigate it? It was our field. Maybe our people were going to be administered drugs. In other words, in, in a defensive way, we felt we would have been delinquent in our responsibilities if we hadn't gotten into this field to find out what was there, if anything. What was your reaction when you heard about the death by suicide of uh, Frank Olson? He was uh, working for the Army at that time, I believe at Fort Detrick, and he had agreed, along with three or four other people who were on the advisory committee to the agency, to be administered a drug. He had agreed to this. Obviously, a mistake was made. I believe that it was discovered that even though his family now denies it, that he had shown suicidal tendencies before, apparently either we, the agency did not know this or hadn't been careful enough in its investigation or should have put more uh, weight on it. In any event, it was a very sad event, and I don't think there was anybody involved that didn't wish it could go away and never have happened. <laughs> It 
it's not the LSD, man. No. We it's fun to talk about the LSD, but this episode is like that's a red herring. I really thought it was gonna be more MK Ultra. You know what I was singing in my head while you were getting ready? My head was going like M K U L T R A M K U L T R A. I like don't know why cheer. I was making up a cheer about MK Ultra, but this was not about MK Ultra. Was he? It was. Were, was Frank positing that his father, or sorry, Eric positing that his father Frank maybe wasn't on LSD at all? I because those experiments did exist. I think that he was given LSD. At some point, I do think the interrogations happened under LSD at sure. that cabin that we've talked about, the lake, uh, Deep Creek Lake. But it's not enough for them to kill him. No, and I don't think that him, his, what this led us to believe at the beginning was that his reaction to the drugs yeah. made him crazy and that's why they killed him. Which seems dubious, which is why I brought up after one of the other episodes where it seems weird that this would be, like, I could see them experimenting, but... You're not going to get like consistent results. This isn't something that is going to be that applicable, I wouldn't think, to Mm -mm. a broad range of things. Now, one of the things they talk about sort of early in this is that there's this third option. You know, we've talked about was he pushed or did he jump? Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the other one is did they convince him to kill himself? Yeah. And if they tried to convince him to kill himself, then... The LSD could have been an attempt to do that because it did start out with them interrogating him and kind of making him think crazy things. But it wasn't because of the LSD. The LSD might have been a tool within their getting him to death. Yeah. But it was not at all why he was dying. No. But we've been mentioning the Korean War was going on at this time. Yeah. There's two things. Well, yeah, the Korean War, the biological warfare apparently eric or i keep getting them mixed up (laughs) frank eric's father father frank was pissed off at biological weapons being used in a in a battlefield scenario meaning like doing something with bugs and releasing them into the i guess onto korean soil at this Mm -hmm. time it seems like biological and even chemical weapons seems like these depending on what happens like the wind blows a certain direction. seems like some of these are pretty dangerous to deal with. 100%. And not just dangerous for who you're trying to throw it on, but it could be dangerous for you as well. There's something very chaotic about the idea of biological and chemical weapons. Oh, yeah, because you're basically throwing it into an area saying no lives in this space matter, ours or theirs. That's essentially what you're doing. There was... The biological warfare was happening, but there was also an interrogation method called artichoke, which... Torturing people to death, basically. Torturing, but I don't know if it's proven or an assumption that they were also using drugs and stuff like that during that interrogation process, which would have been possibly why Frank was over there, because he was part of some of these interrogations... Because apparently he came back and said to a friend, have you ever seen someone die? Right. And the friend was like, no. And Frank was like, I have. Maybe it's because we have more history to look back on. But the idea that you would join a government agency to develop chemicals and biological things and then become shocked when the government is using this to kill lots and lots of people. 
it seems like I mean I'm I guess I'm glad that Frank had some measure of of uh ethical turmoil mm-hmm. here but it almost seems also kind of rather naive but maybe it's just I don't know honestly you think about today what if we found out that I mean the Afghani papers came out which shows like how inept the entire government was at dealing with Afghanistan and leading into Iraq mm-hmm. But none of this was, like, hard for the average citizen to wrap their mind around. Like, if they told us, like, yeah, we blasted half of Iraq with these biological agents, what the fuck would happen? Would people even really care? I mean, people will get mad if, uh, like, someone of their their opposite preferred party is in the office. They suddenly start to care about these things. Mm. But when, like, you know, like our fellow liberal liberals are bad about this, they'll... That they're they'll rightfully angry when a Republican does this stuff under Republican administrations, but then you put your neoliberal puppet in, and we could just pretend like everything's okay. It's hard to imagine people even they might have this surface outrage, being pissed for a week, but it's hard to imagine people would it would change anyone's lives. Well, I think the difference between now and then is that at that time, listen, we know people have always been shit, mm-hmm. right? Government's always been shit. But there was sort of more of a hopeful we're the good guys kind of attitude back then that we've lost, right? I don't think anybody now is that delusional. Well, I think you'd be surprised. Well, okay. Or that people don't think. Like, they accept that we do these bad things and think that we are, that we're the only ones allowed to do them. Maybe that is more it. But, you know, back then, I can just, I can, I can understand a very smart bright-eyed biochemist saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to go work for the government. I'm going to do good things. We're going to figure shit out. And maybe in his mind, it, it was only for defensive measures. You know, I don't know what that is, but maybe he did have good intentions going into it. Or maybe he didn't question it that much because he's working for Uncle Sam and that's a good, honorable thing to do, you know. And then once he realized what was happening and he saw that darker side, he couldn't didn't want to handle it anymore. But there's no excuses now. If you think we have global moral superiority, you're just dumb. So well, no, so but this dumb. is 1953. Yeah. And previous. I'm not saying that's exactly why, but... But Frank's on the front line. He's not like your average guy delivering milk. Well, he wasn't always, though. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, he was in a lab, and then when he went there and saw the Project Artichoke, he came back angry. Yeah. When he saw it with his own eyes, because I think that's the other thing people can do, like you said, you just ignore it. So he was doing his job, and then potentially when it was finally in front of his face, that's when he was like, oh, holy fuck. When he actually watched someone die. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, there's a direct line from me to this person's death, and I'm not okay with that. Like we said, this show does present all people involved, even as dubious as they are, having like some expression of a moral pause. And this is the episode where I thought Vin cuz I keep mm-hmm. thinking it's Vin trying to hook up with, with uh with Molly Parker here. With mom. Alice. Alice. Mom, yeah. I was like is Vin going to make his move here with the martini? I don't know why I keep wanting this to happen. But I don't think it ever happens. But no it doesn't. But they do go over and they're like Lashbrook is there and Gottlieb is there and they're like I worked closely with Frank for several years. He never mentioned you. He was a talented 
scientist. Considered him a close friend. There's a lot of, uh, kind of like the first episode was quite a bit of reenactments. This one seemed to be a little bit more than the others as well. There were a lot. A few things I think we should mention. There is a video at the beginning. Who's the man doing the interview at the beginning? I didn't recognize him. He was like a former CIA director. And they were confessing to the LSD thing because, yeah. Yeah, but they were doing the whole blame the victim thing. So it was, listen, he agreed to take the LSD. Also, even though his family denies it, he was suicidal prior to taking the LSD. And so maybe he shouldn't have been given the LSD, but that's why he killed himself. But as Eric and this episode posits that they can admit to the LSD thing. Because why would... That's their out. Yeah, because it's a distraction from the fact that they were developing biological weapons and torturing people to death, probably in very experimental and gruesome ways. Yeah, there's a tiny bit too. They don't go into detail about this. But when he's talking about the whole cover-up and the deception, they talk about how at one point they took Frank to a magician, John Mulholland, and it was basically, we're taking you there to be entertained, but John Mulholland was actually someone who had written a manual for the CIA about how to covertly slip, slip something covertly slip something into someone's drink. You cannot trust magicians. sneakily, you know, put something somewhere or get something past someone. And so he was actually working for the government, teaching them how to do these sneaky-ass things. You hear this, ladies? When you get magicians and you're tender, look at how good they are at slipping things into your drink. <laughs> hey, watch it, yeah. I'm fucking serious. Watch out. Magicians, that's a red flag. Sorry, Maybe. magicians. Uh, They also have this bit where Vin did have, like you said, a little bit of a moment in this one where he showed some remorse in a couple different ways. I really feel like him going to visit Alice, I mean, the reenactments are reenactments, but the feeling you get is not so much that he was going there to try to seduce her or whatever, but you get the feeling that he he really did, he felt bad. He really did maybe think of Frank as a friend and he really did care about this family. I believe that. I could be wrong, but it seemed as though it was almost like his way of mourning, and it was almost like he was paying penance. He was going and spending time with her because he felt guilty. He confessed in a deposition. Sure, I'm afraid I say one thing. Certainly. Something has troubled me. I never recall having told Mrs. Olson anything that was flatly untrue. I did allow her to think things that were not true. I just would like to have that put on the record that I do regret it. And then they called him honorable. Like, yeah, that's very A couple nice. different people did. They were, just, oh, yeah, he's an honorable guy. Well, that's a very honorable gesture. American exceptionalism kissed the ass of anyone who fucking mm-hmm. has a flag lapel pin or whatever the fuck. Also, after Frank died, Vin got a promotion. Which could or could not have been like a thank you. Yeah. Because uh, he was towing the line. Promotion to a lab that uh, Frank had built. A government lab. I don't know what year it was, but Vin died in a church right after the official murder investigation had started. There were a couple times they tried to sue for murder. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what year he passed away, but he had a heart attack right after they had said they were going to do it. That same deposition... That's when Alice said to them, he was not going to kill himself. I keep wanting to clap my hands because I feel so strongly about some of this stuff. He was not going to kill himself, 
because when he called her the night before, he didn't say goodbye to her. And she believed, and I think this is true, if he'd planned on killing himself, there would have been a I love you so much, tell the kids I love them, you know, take care of yourself. But he was like, I'm going to see you tomorrow. Yeah. Everything's going to be fine. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't read that way, you know? Um, we also go really deep on this one into Eric, and they kind of start the whole Eric is in is buried by this whole situation because in 2002, they reburied Frank's remains. He was out of the ground for, what, eight years? And so something like that because they wanted to make sure they knew it was happened, and they basically were like, well, we know now that he was killed because of these biological... But the, but the investigator he hired hit a wall and he couldn't go further. And Eric is in so deep, but lawyers and investigators that he's tapping to help him out, they can't really go far. And one attorney explains that, like, look, you can... I didn't I actually didn't know this law specifically. Me neither. I forget what the... I don't know if you wrote down what the I act did. was called. The Federal Tort Claims Act. What this means is that you can sue the government for, like, neglect or maybe incompetence. But if they kill you on purpose, you're shit out of luck. You can't you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So if he proves that they did murder his father because it's the government and they this law was passed, then he can't do anything about it. But as it turns out, some papers they signed in 1975 prevent any further action on their part yeah. to go any further than they've already gotten. Federal Tort Claims Act was cited by, I guess, by the judge in the second lawsuit because it was dismissed, but the judge actually said, I believe you. Yeah. I'm convinced by these facts. And yet, it was almost because I'm convinced of these facts, I have to dismiss this case because you can't sue the government for murdering. If the government chooses to murder you. You did. Then ain't nobody can do shit about it. Mm-hmm. At the end, 2014, Eric is... A lot of dates in this show. There's a lot of dates. They're all very important. Eric has been obsessed with this for his entire life. He still lives in the house where he was a child. I'm sure he moved out at some point, but when his mom died, he took that house over. They reference him sacrificing careers and stuff. Well, he didn't pursue. Yeah, he's a doctor, and he's obviously... Not starving, but he's so obsessed with this that he didn't focus his... I mean, he's a smart man. Yeah. He might even be brilliant, but he didn't focus that energy on doing something in the world, which he could have. You know, he focused this on this obsession with his father's death. In 2014, he has hit a wall with everybody else. And so he goes to Seymour Hirsch. And he says... The story, he's like, he's like, hey, I got to talk to you. And Seymour's like, dude, we all know the story. We've known the story for decades. What the hell are you doing here? People are dead. All these witnesses are dead. And Eric's like, everything that you think happened, every story that was told about the LSD, it's all bullshit. And so he lays out for Hirsch all the stuff that he's found out over the years. Because I guess they haven't been talking, whatever. But he tells him about everything and what he thinks happened and Hirsch gets like upset about it because he's like what are you talking about what are you talking about I blew this story we told this story the story's been out there he literally blew this story (laughs) 
And so he's like, but give me a minute. I'll look into it. Cut to a reenactment. End scene. Some bar, right? It's the night. It's the bar hotel. Yeah. I'm sorry. The hotel bar. The night that it happens. And uh, we see uh, Lashbrook get bumped into by a waitress and drops uh, a note, a napkin that says 2.30. Which is the time that he got up, unlocked the door, and went in the bathroom. And then the episode ends. Yeah. Let's finish this shit. You think that finding the answer to this is going to restore the path of your own life. But how can it possibly do that if you've lost yourself along the way? You think you're going to get a judicial decision? You think somebody's eventually going to pay the bills for all this? You think you're going to find peace of mind? What's that going to consist of? You're going to find out that your father was murdered by the CIA. Feel better now? Do you feel better now? Is that better than not knowing? Is it? Wormwood. It's all bitter. Watching the night go by Wishing that you could be Watching the night with me Into the night I cry Hurry home, come home to me Set me free We, th- we finished this, Wormwood. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't know we were recording. Oh yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Yeah, and um, you know, I gotta say, I felt skeptical at moments. Sometimes a little tired and spacey at another at other moments. Same. But by the end here, I was in it. Yes. I was wrapped up in it. And I felt like it kind of put a nice little bow on it the way it could. <laughs> it's kind of funny that you said that. Well, I know Eric may disagree, but come on. This episode is pretty much like, yeah, he was murdered by well, the government. I just mean like, because Cy Hirsch was like, you cannot put a bow on this. You do not have an ending. <laughs> I don't know. I would bet that Errol does think it. I mean, would Errol like names and location names and shit? Of course. Like, so would Eric. And But I think Errol is satisfied with this. I think for Errol, this is a bow. Yeah, well, by the end of it, he pretty much says these are the only two things. We're, this is the only one thing we're unsure of, and he gives you two options. We go back into the reenactments, and we see Frank, the Frank fall into his death intro. It comes full circle. Oh, yeah. But we're forgetting, but we didn't really mention this guy. We've been seeing this dude with a little mustache mm-hmm. popping in and out of the episodes. There's no direct referencing to him. He's just kind of a player. I've seen the actor before. I can't think of I who it is. I can't place him either. He's great. I don't know. But he ultimately represents, like, security services for the CIA. CIA security, yeah. He starts with sort of a timeline on this one. And he says, you know, 1953, this was some kind of accident. 1975, they admitted that it was some kind of drug experiment, but it was a suicide. 1944, they dug up the body. Homicide. 2000s, like 2017, it's an execution. Eric, he talks about how... Seymour is kind of, at first, he, it almost sounds like he's painting Seymour Hirsch, the guy who broke the story. Oh, yes. As like he's a little clueless, like he's not grasping it. And he's kind of flabbergasted that somebody of this credential 
could maybe miss some things. But of course, he was Eric was always suspect of it, of the answers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, may, but it took him seemingly a lifetime to piece all this stuff together. But he always did seem to. But his basic uh, distrust of the answers seemed to always be right on. And, yeah. But, but he paints Seymour as like he missed something. And then we go to talk to Seymour. Yeah, because he sort of, like you said, missed something. He he compares Seymour's entire career yeah. to this story. I felt like it was a little strange, like as if a journalist can't, you know, be wrong. And also, journalists also often have their own specific agenda, especially modern journalism. It's just going by corporate status quo at this mm-hmm. point. So, but the idea that, I guess it's because maybe Frank, he was very highly educated himself. And I think sometimes it's like people hear about someone's great education and it's like, can you believe they were a fool? And I would say that yeah, in, anybody at any point can be a fucking moron. Absolutely. And th- that's what kind of killed, because Frank's a very smart guy. He's, Harvard, not Frank, uh, Eric, mm-hmm. Harvard educated. Yes. And so he's like, how could he miss this? He's so broad. But let, let me tell you, even if you went to an Ivy League school, let me ask you a question. Did you ever meet a fucking moron at your college? Of course, everyone did. So like, you know, education means something, but no, but we've all known people within these systems that are fucking doofuses. Yeah, well, what what you just said, like, actually makes something that Seymour says make a lot more sense. So, so, so just to preface this again, Eric went to Seymour and said, dude, you were wrong. This is what happened. They pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. This is all a lie. Here's what went down. I don't know why he waited so long to have that conversation with him after he felt like he knew what happened. Because then Seymour turned around and went to a source and immediately got confirmation of Eric's story, but cannot tell the story. Yeah. Because you have to protect the source. He can't say how the source got the info. But at one point in explaining this, you know, Errol says, why do you think you got it wrong? How did you not know? Something was fishy when you first broke this story. And Seymour says, well, I'd only been doing it for 15 years. And we both kind of, like, you know, I think, you know, you kind of laughed and said 15 years. You know, like, that's a chunk of time. But in honestly, if you start when you're out of college and you still have some ideals, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you get into it, but maybe he hadn't seen, like, the shittiest of shit yet. Ten years of working hard on anything kind of makes you good at something. Yeah, but was he doing that level in, of investigative journalism the entire time? It takes time for people to get to a point where they're, like, that high profile. Or to build sources. And this was his first, that was his first big story was the chemical warfare stuff going on. Yeah. Like, that was what sort of put his name out there. So after 15 years, he had his first big story, and he thought he'd figured out something amazing. Yes, there were other things going on. I don't think he got anything wrong. He just didn't understand right. what really went down with Frank Olsen. I, I agree with that. And when I said what I said earlier, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even mean that, um, I'm sorry, Seymour was a fool. Actually, it seems kind of understandable. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like Because... Eric is kind of, we're getting like a wizened Eric, a lifetime of information through Eric. So, and he is so frustrated because he lost his father. He's been obsessed with this his whole life. Yes. I'm sure for a chunk of Eric's life, he thought the LSD thing meant something. Absolutely he did. But 
They bought it straight out of the president's mouth. But Seymour, I mean, the fact that he acknowledged that he wasn't quite right then. If you have respect for journalism, you will admit when you're wrong or at least do a new story. But in this case, Seymour cannot visit the story again because the because he describes that and the way this information was taken would expose people. Yeah, so basically what comes out over Eric talking and Seymour talking is that there is a document somewhere behind some door or in some box protected by someone or some whatever that explains exactly what happened. Apparently this person who Seymour talked to saw this piece of paper. But the thing is, is to get to those locations, you have to be somebody. He said, yeah, he said he would create an Edward Snowden kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Edward Snowden who did a document dump and ended up having to run for, you know, his life from the U.S. government because Obama was pretty hard on, fucking hard on whistleblowers and he was no exception. So he's basically saying there's no way he could tell this story because if people saw him having the information, he would like, wait, we can narrow this down because most of the players are like dead or gone. Yeah. Which means this can be narrowed down to an even smaller group of people. And if this is protected in such a way, it's not going to be that difficult to see who's looked at those papers. And Seymour... In the last year or two. And Seymour Hirsch is 100% right to do this. Yes. He is 100% right not to name this source. Absolutely. It actually shows his integrity as a journalist that he will not turn over his source. He actually says to Errol, duh. A duh. Yeah. The source is always more important than the story. Yes. Always. Because if something... And I feel so bad for Eric. And I know his father's been gone at this point, like... A lifetime, more than multiple lifetimes, and and him Seymour, if he released the story, that was another life that could be gone, exactly, or at least on the run. And I, and it really came across that Seymour is empathetic to that. He feels badly for Eric. He wishes Eric could find satisfaction in the fact that he knows that he's right. But he even can't tell Eric the details. Yeah. All he can say is confirmed. But the yeah, the overall confirmation is, and there's no doubt in the viewers, my if, if there's really any doubt by anyone, the CIA fucking murdered. The CIA Frank murdered Frank Olson because they considered him a dissident. Yeah, that is what he confirms. He actually does say because Errol at one point tries to ask him. You know, pretty much is like, I'm just going to go for it and see what you'll tell me. Yeah. And he says, I can't tell you anything. Isn't that what you wanted for an interview? Isn't that a great interview? I'm not going to give you anything. He said, but what I will tell you is he was dissatisfied with what was going on. Yes. And he was dangerous because of that. They got the Korean War vets to recant their stuff. And that was very clever that we saw that then. I mm-hmm. you you think it's relevant, but you don't. But then it's like, oh, Frank was at one point like those soldiers. Yeah, they tell Eric tells towards the end that the whole reason to go to that Dry Creek Lake or whatever it was called, the cabin that we keep talking about, was because this was already a concern, and they took him there and they did give him drugs, but it was to try to see if he was really a problem. 
And then he said some stuff in that cabin that confirmed that he was a problem for them, that he was not happy with what's going on. He did not agree with what's happening. And then they gave him a chance to recant, and he said, no. Yeah. This is where I am. This is where I stand. Now, I don't know that he got a chance to recant when he was sober, because the next day he wanted to quit his job. You know, like he tried to extract himself from this situation, but that wasn't enough. And then they took him to that doctor, and that doctor said, well, the assumption is the doctor said, we can't trust him. You, I can't tell you that he's not going to do something. Yeah. That he's not going to talk or he's not going to whatever. And then that's when they called in security, which is what you were talking about with the, yeah. with the guy that we don't know who apparently orchestrated this. And Eric kind of goes through how he thinks it worked out. He, It's obvious that Lashbrook and those guys didn't do this directly. Mm-hmm. They, the CIA has thugs and they don't communicate every detail so they don't implicate each other. Uh, you'd be surprised if the guys never knew Frank's name but five minutes before they walked into that hotel. Well, and we've learned going through this that these reenactments are pretty much Errol's best guesses at how this went down. You know, from what the pieces that have been pieced together from these documents that don't make sense and what Eric's found out through the years. And there is a part where he sort of posits that they on- they only are given the minimal information. Like, Lashbook probably doesn't actually know what's going to happen but he's slipped a napkin that says 2.30 a.m. These guys don't probably know Frank's name or what he did or why he's getting gone, but they gave him a napkin with a room number on it and they went and took care of their business because that was their job. Yeah. And it fucking sucks. Yeah. And it sucks to even say it that way. And the Red Scare shit at that time was so fucking potent. Oh, jeez. I mean, every Marvel comic villain that came out of the 60s alluded to Chinese or Russian era communism. Yep. It was so reactionary. And it's very interesting uh, how Russia has come in and out of our culture. Lately, we have claims of Russian interference. Yeah. And, you know, if there is some details of Russian... Ha- I, f- I find that these details aren't that specific. Sometimes people are like, oh, Russia made racist memes to make racist vote for Donald Trump. As if we weren't inherently racist. I don't really understand that claim so much. But now it seems... Propaganda. As, yeah. I mean, well, the argument is that the Russians are utilizing propaganda. That's what I'm saying. And granted, they are very good at it. But it but it almost seems like that the media is now using the Russian interference as a blanket term to distract from pushing away certain values within yeah. specific parties, such as the Democratic Party. Um they're, they talk more about Russian interference than they do Republicans in southern states purging voter rolls. And my point is, it's like, Russia is always invested in our elections, you know. It's not even unusual that our politicians, whether Democratic or Republican, do deals with Russian oligarchs because it's not actually technically illegal. But now it's we've got this blanket thing, you know. It becomes this thing as an excuse to distract. It becomes a convenient tool. And the media whether they're in on it or not, are at the very least like always suckers for like this kind of like very simplified baiting of explanations of things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, God, the U.S. government has interfered in so many goddamn global elections. It's not even funny. Yeah, well, and that's like, what is it that... that... And we have way more resources, too. Right. Well, and what is it that, that Seymour Hersh is saying at one point? 
Errol's basically like, why do you think you didn't break this? And he was like, this isn't a story about journalism. Yeah, I like that part a lot. I did too. He was like, this isn't about whether or not I broke this. I mean, I'm so obviously paraphrasing. But it's not about whether or not he broke the story or why didn't another journalist break the story? Why didn't somebody find it? It's about the fact that it was done and done so well that no one knew. And even talking about it not having an ending at the end, he was like, isn't that more interesting? Because it is. that really, it is. Because it really speaks to how deep this can go and how well it can be hidden. And isn't that fucking scary as shit? He doesn't say that. That's me. That's scary as shit. It is. And the funny, and it's pointed out in this episode too. Remember, they passed that act. If they declare that they intended to kill you or just say for national security purposes, then your life didn't mean shit. Oh, shit. Okay, so like that, yes. So that was in 1954. That was months after Frank Olson was died, was killed. The CIA, there was a another situation where they're, what is that called? They're talking. It's not a trial, but there's like a, uh, whatever, do- they're holding court, show. whatever. Dog yeah. <laughs> and so the head of the CIA admits to this panel of people that yes, they have protected agents who have acted outside of the law. And they're unapologetic about it. And there's this woman in this white hat who was like, what are you even saying to me right now? Like, what do you even mean? And he was just like, we, you know, I mean, it was, it was a bunch of like sideways talk out of the side of his mouth, but it was him saying, basically, we did what we had to do and you should thank us for it. Yeah, who... uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, whoever that lady was is just doing political grandstanding. It's hard to even accept that she would not assume that the CIA would never, would always stay in the exact lane of the law. I feel like she kind of just wanted him to say it more plainly. I guess. Because she was like, what are you talking about? Like, you're, you know, like he seemed double talky. But anyway. Oh, yeah, he's trained. That's what do they that. do. I know. <laughs> Um, we also get like a fucking montage of other cases. Oh God! Of, of reports of people involved in government that died in very similar ways, falling, yeah. leaping. And yes. so, I mean, this is just shit Eric's uncovered over the years. You know, of, of course, as well. I'm trying really hard to remember what it was, but this stuff still happens occasionally. Wasn't there, well, I mean, like, weird deaths where you're like, was that a suicide? Wasn't there some stuff around when um, the whole, like, housing Jeffrey market Epstein. crashed? Well, Jeffrey not Jeffrey Well, sure. Yes, Jeffrey mm-hmm. Epstein. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. But also, like, when the whole market crashed, the housing market thing crashed. 2008, yeah. There was stories of people who were like killing themselves because of it but then it also seemed really sketchy am i remembering this correctly i may be getting mm-hmm. confused with something else but i feel like there's just some shady shit happening all the time and sometimes i'm just really glad that no one knows who we are in those levels of government <laughs> yeah, you know we, what i mean <laughs> we don't need any more listeners than we already got okay no i want we more don't listeners. need any I'm more just listeners saying, like i don't want to be on certain people's radar and i'm happy that we're not on any level to be but listen, tell your friends about the documenteers. This is the best podcast in the, the world. Tell the government about the documenteers. <laughs> and those CIA fucks. <laughs> They're listening. They're so, always listening. So, yeah. I mean, what more can we get? I guess Eric just wants names. He wants to see that piece of paper. You Buddy, know, I feel for you. You know. If you know these G-men's names, what difference is that going to make? Honestly, actually think 
what he wants, he got as close as he's going to get with this documentary. Because what he kept saying is, he wants hard confirmation. And I think he wants responsibility to be taken. But one of the things he said that really seemed to be of utmost importance to him was that for this whole time, for these 60 years, 70 years, it's been told one way that was wrong. And that's been a very public story. The CIA's made statements. The president made statements. Like, people have told this story in the ways they want to tell it. And he said, I just want people to know what actually happened. And the the LSD thing has become very juicy to the counterculture to multiply that in other directions. Absolutely. Though I do believe LSD is used uh, by the government to kind of make people susceptible to certain suggestions. Sure. And I think we were talking about this the other night. I really would like to dive deeper into the actual MK Ultra situation. I've always been very interested in that. And when I thought this was about that, I was super intrigued. This is not about that at all. No. But that was just used as another scapegoat. And because like I pointed out before, there's no way this had consistent results. I mean, no. You get very you can be very a lot easier manipulated when you're in, on hallucinogens. But getting someone to like kill themselves or something, or that's kind of a whole different ball game. It's better to be like, tr- it's good to use if you're just trying to trick someone. Mm-hmm. It's not something you use to truly control someone. I think, yeah, for something like that to happen, there would have to be some serious underlying issues already going on. And in that case, you're being irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. All is bitter. Angela, we don't rate documentary series. In Stars or Herzogs, it's a documentary series, and we utilize the man who made this documentary series to write documentary series. We sure do. I'm going to give this one through five Errol Morris's. You're mm-hmm. going to give this one through five Errol Morris's. Combine them for best out of ten Errol Morris's for Wormwood. I, I felt like I was on some ups and downs here. Stylistically, I think this works great. Uh, they There was a lot of transitions. Um when it showed numbers and dates, dates are very important in this. Mm-hmm. The numbers would like move around. Mm-hmm. If you were on uh, hallucinogens, a lot about this would trip you out. That's yes. kind of interesting. And uh, and the opening credits, not the first and the last one, but the ones in the middle had this weird like s- like style. Kind of reminds me of like like the background of a Jim Steranko drawing or something like in motion or some shit. But um, it's a lot of fun, and it's well executed, as you would think that Errol Morris can do this kind of thing. Yeah, I remember it. Errol is like in it, but he's never like dead on face. It's like you see him from far away, you see the back of his head, and mm-hmm. I was, at first I was like, "Are we going to get a lot of face front Errol Morris in here?" Never. No, it's kind of like that series where sometimes you would see parts of him randomly, or just his face in the square. <laughs> It didn't show that, but what was that series called? I can't remember. Um, oh, shit. That like, was my introduction to Errol Morris. Or some shit? Or... Anyway, it doesn't matter. I should know, though, because it's the first thing I ever saw with him, and I've watched it. I've watched it was, a lot of those multiple times. I think it was like a Showtime show from yeah. like 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was a really good look for that. And it actually, uh, one of those things actually helped me with some small legal things. We should like, put it in the show notes. And I won't say that I was absorbed the whole way. Mm. I wasn't. Mm-mm. There were some parts I felt like were slow. I I thought the reenactments were fine. They were a little a bit more involved than Errol's usual reenactments. 
But like, but it does show that Errol does have the skill to frame a scene. Like he could, like Werner Herzog, make a fe- more feature films, and I would check them out. You know, but um, but like I said, at the very beginning, especially the initial fall opening, it kind of reminded me of like a Coen Brothers vibe kind of thing. So you know, uh, hopefully it wouldn't be too redundant. But in terms of fleshing out a story and the way it ends and it wraps it up, it's debatable if it's a little bow. I'm going to say it is because we just know that Frank was murdered and it's uh, and it's a good, compelling series. I'm not going to go perfecto. I'm going to give it a 4.25. Wow. Because it brought me in and yeah. held me in its bosom and I got it. It was good in the hook. I uh, just a couple things I want to comment on and then I'm going to get right into it, but I also thought the openings are very interesting. What I realized as we were watching that final opening is, to me, I don't know if this is the right interpretation, but in the first episode, we pretty much knew he killed himself. And we saw him fall. And then the whole middle bit was very confusing and all over the place and weird, like that black and white moving picture where you're feeling sort of trippy. But then at the end... We know he was murdered and you see him fall again. It's different music like you pointed out. It's very, I thought it was very effective. It's very cinematic. I would not be surprised if the next thing we see from Errol is a film. He'd be good at it. I don't know what direction he would go, but I think it felt very noir. He, yeah, that vibe, you could tell he loves that vibe. Yeah, real strong vibe. I would love him to do an old school detective story. <laughs> yeah, get a I good writer. He, yeah. I was in and out of it like you said. Some of the most fascinating stuff to me was Eric's story. I really feel for that guy. The pure documentary part of it. The pure documentary part of it. He still lives in the house that he lived in when he was a child. He's completely arrested by this whole situation. And that I really truly hope that he got some sort of closure from this. At least being able to say, the story's out there and there's no way anybody's going to watch this and not believe it. I am actually going to go 3.75. You take my 4.25 combined with your 3.75. That is a total of 8 out of 10 Errol Morris's for Wormwood by Errol Morris. Good job, Errol Morris. And I don't want to linger too long because this episode is fucking long. Yes. And folks, let's move along and I will. we will see you next week. Wormwood, 8 out of 10 Errol Morris's. Thanks, dear. Thank you. You want to say it? Keep on docking. Don't make this a big deal about journalism and about amazing, sensitive, and incredible thing. And uh, duh. The source is more important than the story, always.
just the hardest part to accept the terms inspect your backs respect the end and tell him that you're done cousin he's all spent and you've not come there's nothing left to give him but a son Still coming There's nothing left to give him